Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 73 of the podcast, the topic is the future of social learning. Our guest is Sarah Josephine Hjort, CEO and co-founder of Canopy Lab. In this conversation, we talk about empowering learners, about blended learning, moving beyond screen time to virtual immersion, AI and AR, and how to use tech the right way, tackling scaling challenges in social learning. We talk about edtech post-COVID-19 and digitizing the 50-plus ways of classroom learning that Sarah has found in a teacher's toolbox and plugging the 21st century skills gap, the next decade's learning reality. Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing great. One of the first days of real winter, so I'm super excited. I love it. I always love people who are excited about winter. Not everyone is, but I guess that's uh, Scandinavians have, uh, or, you know, in the Nordics, we have uh, an affinity for, for winter. As long as it's winter and not just summer in between, right? It's, it has to really be winter. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So Sarah, um, you have this wonderful background in social learning, and I know that you're in your uh, the last stages of, of your PhD at Oldborg University, um, working uh, very hard at uh, innovating and studying this trend in learning that suddenly became extremely popular with COVID, uh, but not everyone was working on before. I wanted to uh, here, because you're now an entrepreneur and you're commercializing and, and really bringing this learning to the world. What was it that got you interested in learning specifically? Well, I think I've probably always been interested in learning, but it wasn't until recently that I realized that you could sort of trace everything I've done back to learning in some capacity. But when I was about 15 years old, I was selected for something called the United World College. Um, which is a bunch of international high schools that pick you based on your merits. And then they gather people from all over the world to live and learn together. So I think I was probably conditioned and socialized <laughs> through almost a social experiment very early on and realized the power of what happens to people when you're confronted with difference, um, different views, different ways of doing things, um, that people are good at very different things and have grown up in, in totally different circumstances. And how did you make this move? Because I understand that your branch of this is, uh, well, there's many names, but uh, let, let's maybe run through some of them. Uh, um, you know, so social learning, problem-based learning, there are many of the, and, and then obviously enhanced by, by, you know, technology and machine learning. But let's, let's stop with this problem-based learning. You, um, wh- why is it so important uh, that the learning is founded in, in a problem? And what does that really mean? Well, I, I think, first of all, um, for me, I kind of realized it the other way around. I didn't look at problem-based learning and then saw the benefits of it. But when I started teaching at university, there almost was a culture of not uh, addressing real-world problems in your teaching, even though I would say I was at Olbo University, which is known for their problem-based approach, but I don't think it it uh, it went through all of the activities we did. So the students may have a project that's um, problem-based for the semester, but when I would teach an individual class, I would very much like many others out there sort of inherit a syllabus and some slides with an expectation of me to describe um, how do you create uh, qualitative um samplings or interviews and interview guides. And I felt like I was just a couple of pages ahead of my students. And I felt like they were very demotivated if you didn't situate the specific lesson within some sort of bigger problem or purpose for them. Like, why am I learning this? Why is it interesting? How should I work with it to have real life applications? And I think having that realization and the realization that if I didn't teach it in a different way, I was ultimately only just a couple of pages ahead of my students. And that was very demotivating both for them and for me. So the moment I began to think about Olbo University's problem-based approach, not just as a semester project where they solve a larger problem over time, but kind of structuring every lesson like this. Why are we here? What is the problem we're addressing today? What are the methodologies or how we could design a solution? And if the given solution to one of the problems was, for example, semi-structured interview guides, then try to kind of run through that whole process with the students in that class. 
You know, one thing I find fascinating right off the bat, Sarah, is, and I've had this experience several times, you come to, let's call it a university, but it could be any organization, and they are known for something. And maybe externally to the world, they are known as teaching this to the rest. And then you get in there, and it's not like, you know, you come in and, you know, you're the best in the world, but you realize certain times that you could be known for something but either the knowledge grows slightly stale or there's always ways that you could go deeper. How would you, how would you characterize this at, at Olborg? Because it is really perplexing that a place that really is known for this approach and internationally, I mean, I, I've read reports from MIT when they were uh, in a, trying to now change their engineering education and I've had a guest on uh, my podcast describing this process and, and you know, they were looking to, to Olborg. So... How do you how do you explain this more in sort of theoretical terms? What is it that happens? Well, that, I think what happens yeah. is that they've spent years on creating an extremely innovative model that's built on how you outside of just one individual class, but collectively throughout the semester, have all of your courses and experiences work together. So the students are given this one semester project and in an interdisciplinary way, they identify their own problems and how to solve it. But I think when we translate it to the individual classroom, what was perplexing to me is that how come we have some of the best researchers in the world, but we're only using the methodology in the semester project or in extracurricular activities, such as hackathons or mega projects, but usually like the majority of it outside the classroom. So when I came into my classroom and inherited these notes and, and old PowerPoints, I felt like I was just teaching the old fashioned way still. So of course we worked in innovative ways with the semester project and I would uh, supervise a series of projects each semester, but my teaching felt like it could have been done anywhere. So I remember um, that we had one particular incident where I had inherited a syllabus as well. And I came to class, I was very frustrated and I asked them to throw it out. I was like, we're okay. throwing this out, we're throwing the materials out and we're gonna lift our butts from our chair today, and we're actually going to do some of all of these, you know, interactive activities or pedagogical exercises or whatever you would call it. Like, why aren't we doing a case competition in class or a hackathon in class or role playing in class? Because these are some of the methodologies that Olbo are so excellent at, particularly when interacting with businesses or with other schools and universities. But we could get better at doing it inside of the class. But I think there it's more up to the individual teacher. And we have to recognize that even before COVID, as a researcher, you have so little time to plan your lessons now because, you know, you know, the different systems, especially here in the Nordics, have taken so much time away from you that if you actually want to create groundbreaking research, you, you don't really have time to do both within the hours that you have uh, as a professor or as a PhD. So I think that people make some, some decisions, they're forced to make some decisions that impact quality. Well, but you made an excellent point, which is a lot of these kind of contemporary learning approaches, they are very demanding both on the teacher, on the students and on the resource use. And I guess COVID has come in as a shocker to the system. And I mean, I remember sort of reflecting back on the on the courses that I was teaching, you know, at MIT were everything was project-based. I mean, I think like a, at least a third of MBA courses at MIT Sloan are, are, you know, with real clients. And I was thinking, how are, you know, are, are, how is that approach going to scale during a COVID situation? And, you know, indeed it has had to change drastically. Um, but you, I mean, micro learning is another aspect. I mean, I know that some of the things that you have pioneered now is you really went deep and tried to distill some of the value-based activities, value-based in terms of what value it gives to the learner. Give us a little sense of, I think it is 40 activities you shared with me earlier. What are some of those activities and what are what is so different when you sort of start kind of enumerating and specifying what those are and, and why is that kind of so groundbreaking that when you're distilling these kind of problem-based tasks down to kind of 40 different sub areas. So give us a little sense of how you even got to so many, what was your process of discovering it and what are you using it for now? So I think it all started again in the, in the sort of first year of my PhD. 
there was both a frustration with the way that we were teaching, uh, but then also I, uh, a frustration that a lot of research about social learning was never really translated to digital formats. And there was very little conversation at that time about what does social look like in the digital world? Because I think so many of us were still struggling with how do I cr really create engaging problem-based lessons in the physical world? Um, but I think a couple of sort of pieces fell into place for me. Um, the first was a curiosity around what is exactly in our toolbox as educators that facilitate learning. And I think that when we look at what makes people learn, actually, you know, and a lot of that is through the observing and modeling behavior of others. So how much did I allow my students to observe or model behavior of others in my class if I'm the one talking? Um, so that was sort of one of the first thoughts. Um, and then the second thought is that, okay, so if I'm going to bring them into the arena of both doing and, and you know, being observed by others, what are the types of activities that will actually lead to learning? So one thing is problem-based learning, it can unfold in a lot of different ways with a lot of different sub-activities inside of the DNA of a project-based learning approach. But what I felt at first was missing was like, what are actually these activities that we can pick from to have students do either in the classroom or virtually that will create some kind of learning? And there I had this sort of naive idea that some awesome researcher somewhere would have made a, a checklist like these are the 50 activities any any teacher has ever used in the physical classroom. Um, and oddly enough, that, that didn't quite exist. But you could actually on certain schools' websites were quite for, forthcoming about these are – so like the school – I think it was um, – at Columbia, at the, when we work with communication, we like these type of activities because it results in this, you know, impact for our students. So I began to compile lists of pedagogical exercises. It could be learning journals, mind mapping, role playing, and all of those have many subsets of how you can organize that as well. And as I compiled sort of bigger and bigger lists, I also began to be puzzled about how we have to begin to structure them in some way um, about the kind of learning output that they result in. And then I contacted um, the technical university in Denmark that also has a department that works with learning. And I said, have you have someone at, at, at your university worked with grouping different kinds of exercises together in, in subgroups or depending on the kind of social activity? They demand from the student, like, are you doing them alone? Is there some kind of real-time interaction with another person? Like, is it an actual co-creation or more like something where your peer review, where you produce a body of work that's then considered done and given to another person? And they said, no, not we don't really have, you know, groupings around this. And then I began to do my, my groupings uh, myself. So that's kind of how some of the work started with what are these pedagogical exercises? What could they look like? How might we group them together? Um, what might be sequences that are interesting for students to go through? Um, and then later on, how do we then actually digitize them? And especially with COVID um, and now that people don't have the same possibility of interacting with each other in the real world, uh, depending on where you are and, and the, the, how much the, the virus has hit that geographical location. Um, I think it's even more important than ever to, to say, okay, what are activities where you have a direct relationship and interaction with another person and some that are indirect and how do we combine those to ensure the mental health and continued learning of our students? Well, I mean, this is obviously the question on every teacher's mind right now. So, I mean, you're speaking to uh, hundreds of thousands of educators at every level. I mean, I have three kids and they are in various stages of the educational system. And it's been a big learning journey, both for them. I think you have to learn how to learn, right? Every time the context changes. Can you give us a sense of the different types of teaching situations that you've been in. Uh, and I know now with Canopy Lab, you must surely also be involved with corporate learning, which, you know, adds another element. I mean, first of all, these are adult learners, so that that's quite different. Uh, they're also busy learners, right? Their brains are busy and, uh, and already, you know, full of lots of other things. 
what are, you know, in these sort of 40 different activities, and, you know, I'd like you to go into detail in, in some of them, what are some of the activities that work better? Uh, I mean, is it by stage or is it, you know, is it like in medicine? It's like personalized. Everything is, you know, we all have our own DNA. I mean, for one, I will tell you, it took me all the way until university and, and even after that to really be happy with my own learning journey. I think I discovered that, you know, absent some extremely lucky uh, coincidence with some excellent educators, I mean, peer learning for me has really been, well, you know, that and, and also a very personalized journey, uh, learning journey has really been what saved me. So... I am very eager to hear if you have put some of this now into system and can kind of really describe this journey that can help individuals that maybe feel very frustrated either with COVID or just generally with learning. Mm. I think that um, one of the things that we've been very successful in doing is actually kickstarting everything. So whether we're working with a, a media company or management consulting or in a refugee camp, we begin by asking them questions about why am I here and how do I think that I prefer to learn? And it's not really about necessarily knowing the answer, but it's about us having an early reflection about what we think about ourselves. So do I think I prefer to learn alone or with others? Do I enjoy quizzes? Do I enjoy, um, if I'm faced with some sort of problem or question, do I enjoy trying to answer it up front with no necessarily any knowledge or do I prefer doing the research first and then returning to the question? Or, and also more so, what, like, what are my goals for the learning journey that I'm embarking on? Am I here because I'm being forced to be here? Am I here because I have a very specific career goal later on? We ask these questions both for the learner to begin reflecting actively and making active decisions about their learning, but also to feed our algorithms with data about the person so that you later on can begin to curate a flow that matches what they've outlined that they like. So that's how we would sort of kickstart uh, any learning journey. I think, early, and, go ahead. No, I thought that was very interesting. I was going to ask you about one thing, which it took me a long time to realize, which is, you know, you learn throughout your life, but very often it's compartmentalized into courses or like separate sort of little tidbits that you learn and you think, you know, okay, now I've learned that. But, um, lately, I'm exploring these different note-taking apps. I was curious as to whether your solution includes note-taking in, and to what degree it does. Because so I'm exploring right now Rome Research and Notion and a few other of these more contemporary note-taking apps. And the reason why is, you know, at least in my own learning journey, I realized I do need to be actively writing down ideas. And these ideas happen at very odd moments. I mean, typically when I run after about 12 and a half minutes, I get all these ideas. So these apps that you have have to be extremely accessible. So there's this trade-off between having these fantastic learning systems, but that may be hard to access, and then having something that's incredibly simple that you can actually type on, which is in my case, my phone, right? And it has to be an app that shows up immediately because my hands are sweaty and I really don't really want to stop. Or it, it could be a dictaphone or just I just record it. So give, give us a sense of when you thought about designing sort of the perfect learning system and the perfect learning technology, what, what went into your mind? And to what extent is sort of notes taking and sort of personal reflection part of this learning? So I think that... Um I think we went through an evolution where we made a lot of mistakes and realized we had to be less extreme. So I think in the beginning, a lot of our research went into trying to find some sort of optimal situation. It might not be a universal optimal, but like what's the optimal learning way for every person? Um, and then we did a, a lot of research about the individual social and collaborative exercises and the kinds of flows with a particular exercise be administered first to optimize learning. Um, and then I think we also made some mistakes around thinking that either you're digital or you're analog. And I think even at Olpo, we don't even use the terminology analog anymore because it's a, 
no one is analog in any situation. We're constantly also, even if we're doing something physical, touching a paper, we're usually connected in some other capacity at the same time. But I think in the beginning, we thought that if it's digital, it's digital. And then we knew that teachers liked downloadables. They'd like to write it in their hand. And we said, that will pass. We don't want to build a system that's outdated from the beginning. But we've actually we reversed on that point. So we're actually implementing a series of changes now where any exercise that can be done digitally can also be downloaded and can also be done by hand so that the templates can be used in a series of different ways. And with that, note-taking will, taking will come as well because I know from myself and the way that I learn is I've always had this idea that if, if I write it down, I can remember it forever. And of course, that's not entirely true. But I know from experience that if I write something by hand, I remember it a lot more because I'm processing it. I'm not writing the same thing. I'm taking notes, but I'm changing it and interpreting it at the same time. And I actually use something uh, which is a kind of in-between, which is uh, Mont Blanc created um, this one where it's still real paper. So I'm writing on paper, but there's a tablet behind. And even for me, that optimizes my learning more than using some of these um, other, like just an iPad, or I think they're called Remarkable. And there's a couple of different ones where you're actually still writing, but on a tablet. And I don't personally learn as much from doing it like that. That's funny. I, I just uh, have finished one of these, the, you know, they're called Rocket Book. I don't know if you've seen those. So I've just used, but, that, but I've used the, pers- the, the version that is truly, a, it's paper. It's just that you can scan it a little easier because it has like edges on it. The only thing is I've found that I don't really need the, the scans because, you know, my, my notes aren't particularly helpful. I mean, my handwriting is horrendous. So I think the point here at some, you know, at some point isn't really the notes. I, I do go back to my notes, but I find that my handwritten notes, sometimes they are very meaningful in the moment. And I do think they do something. But when I go back, they are slightly less useful. They're at least at a very more abstract level because I can't decode every little thing that's written in there. It's more of a general sense. Anyway, I I, I think that learning is, at least we think it is, very personal. But do we overthink it as learners? Is it actually much less personal? I mean, at the end of the day, it is a generic process that we all go through. I think that what has surprised me is that there are clear trends that go um, across almost all of our learning systems that are the same, which are that all of the social exercises where people interact with others in real time are the most popular everywhere. So whether it's, again, a refugee camp, whether it's corporate learning, whether it's young or old, the true preference is for social learning activities. And we found this out um, about a year and a half ago where, um, and it's actually, it was a bit of a fun process where we learned so much from it that we didn't realize when we set out to build it. But we had a um, biology teacher come to us and said, Sarah, it's great that you guys have now over 50 learning templates for different kinds of pedagogical exercises. But I just really like biology. I don't necessarily know if I should do a baseline test or if it should be a structured or unstructured um, like interview questions for my self-reflection journal. I geek out about biology, not learning. So I need some sort of guide here. Like what should, does a particular exercise fit a particular piece of content better? Is there a flow? And of course, you know, I could start by saying, well, some there's a clear flow, like a baseline test only works at a specific time of a learning journal, a learning journey. So yes, there are some things like that. And he said, well, you know, you guys have gamified so many other ways of building the course. It could be nice if there was some sort of guide to me about what to pick. And then we implemented these three different recommendations. And it was quite simple to do. One is about what's trending in my learning environment. So what, when you factor for how much it's offered and how much it's taken, is actually the most popular type of activity that we offer. Then we grouped all of our learning systems by industry and said, what is the most popular learning activity in your industry? And find the unique recommendation depending on where you are in your course building flow um, or a, a particular type of content that may fit a particular type of exercise well. So after we implemented that, we have a ton of data and we can see that the top three to five on every solution we have, and I'm speaking about between 200 and 250, it's all activities such as um, debate, 
oral presentation, uh, discussions, uh, role playing. It's all those very, very non-scalable activities that we actually assumed that corporate learners didn't want to do. So we assumed because almost all corporate learning you've seen is quizzes and very, very short answer type things. We assumed that corporate learners would be too busy uh, and they're doing it sort of on the fly and they wouldn't want to take part in these activities. But that that is actually not the case. And of course, that patterns become even clearer with COVID, but it was quite clear before as well. I find that interesting. Um, I think that sometimes when you use or when people use the term social learning, it's really hard to understand what that means because it's been uh, so embedded and mixed up with kind of social media. Explain what the difference is because, you know, if, and I've seen many of these kind of learning systems online and they really are just social learning means you learn in a group and it's like you have, uh, you know, and I'm, I don't want to name social networks here, but basically you have, you know, X little discussion on, you know, on one of these very popular social networks. But what you're talking about is actually more analog to what I remember in my upbringing in, in the best of teachers that really managed to get us uh, doing a, a serious group project and then present it in front of an audience and, and get real uh, critique, uh, I guess, around the presentation. These things are, like you pointed out, they are very, very social, but they're social in the original sense of social. They're not online social. No. They're not just quizzes. No, and what's what's been difficult about them is actually to find scalable ways of hosting it digitally. Um, but I'll get back to how some of these things are being navigated with tech. I think we try to differentiate between what we would call a direct uh, social learning experience and an indirect. So to me, the social networking is only an indirect social experience in the sense that a forum or a social newsfeed gives you insights about that there are other people and that they are learning or they may be sharing what they're doing and you may have some sort of um, not face-to-face, -face, not real-time interaction with them. And it's not to say that that's not valuable, because I think if we look back at some of the first research reports that came out about Coursera and Khan Academy and Udemy, when we began to see research on that was that people often felt that they were alone in their learning experience. They would log on to some sort of learning platform, end up inside a course, and then never see another person. And that's very demotivating. So I think that that's that sort of social layer, the social networking layer does enable you to um, find role models and mirror other people's behavior. But that's not really, to me, where the actual learning takes place. It takes place in a direct social connectivity with another person while the way I would see it, conducting some sort of pedagogical exercise in collaboration that, that to me is the true essence of social learning. And then it is now in a digitized version, which then requires cameras and all kinds of other built-in apps for it to be nice. And a lot of it's still really not perfect. Um, and it hasn't... I was going to say, how does this scale? Because, you know, I, I think a, a lot of people now have this... Well, there's a, it's a term in the language, you know, Zooming and, and you know, going on Zoom. And my seven-year-old knows this terminology well and, you know, uh, is, is now kind of internalizing what that could mean. And even though it's sort of changing, what, what are the ways that this can be fruitfully scaled? You know, uh, you said, you know, Khan Academy and these places. I mean, some of them have been able to, to some extent, scale learning, although it's a little questionable what that really means because they're scaling it for certain courses and, and who knows what people really are learning. But overall, when you are embarking on trying to teach or, or even just build a community of a large number of people who are not physically co-located and you want some sort of learning process or community-based process to take place, how do you now advise that that starts, uh, you know, how does that really work these days? So I think we've, we've gone through a quite big evolution on trying to formulate the concepts and we've gotten very far with some uh, and some are still very challenging. So in the beginning, we actually conceptualized that in order for learning to take place, it had to include what we used to call an activity hour, which was again, you know, some sort of 
online social forum where you conducted some kind of activity with others. And in order for you to pass the course, let's say it was five um, modules, it had to contain five activity hours and you had to be there for four of them. And we hmm. see that the, in the self-assessment surveys that when people, you know, when we listen to if they felt that they learned something, that the output was much, much greater when we had this activity hour. But it was a handheld thing that wasn't scalable. So in the beginning, we had facilitators that would come up with unique exercises and people would check in at many different, because we have a global audience, they would check in at all times, you know, day, night, anywhere and at every time. Um, but sometimes you have to build something that doesn't scale to figure out how it scales. Uh, so we found out what principles were working. And then now um, we give a guide to our clients about how to enable these different, again, role-playing, debates, virtual presence, oral pres presentations. But then we're also building a unique template design for each exercise. So for example, right now our team has gotten really far with um, building a new debate tool that will be a totally digital tool that will pair up people that will give them feedback on their performance and how much they're talking. Um, so, so we are viewing it almost as if every pedagogical exercise needs a unique template that you could think about as a unique app. And then some of them have been very easy to make and some of them are very, very hard. So when we have this grid of the 55, it's like there's a generic template. For some of them, you can download it, but now we're actually building an interactive app inside of all of them. And that's one of the reasons we very recently just raised some more money to sort of unfold that um, even more. And then I think finally, because of our connection to uh, University of Olbo, we just got a very big grant from the Danish government of just around $2.3 million to work with Olbo University and a couple of corporate players in also digitizing in a scalable way the project-based learning approach, hackathons, mega projects, and trying to dissect what is the DNA of each activity and what needs to happen in the process of project-based learning. So could we create a generic template? So let's say you log on a platform and then you take a quiz to say, do you want to create this linear learning? Everyone learns in the same way, one size fits all. Do you want to create an adaptive learning experience or do you want to create, for example, a, a, like a hackathon? And then a unique template will unfold itself that asks, that prompts you to put in different things, but that then has that DNA of that activity built into it. And it's a three-year research project. And when it's done, we'll have these unique and tested templates for all of those activities. Fascinating. Look, the learning space is crowded with players. How do you see this playing out? I mean, even on this podcast, I, I do have a, a bunch of learning companies involved and, and many of them claim that they have found something fantastic. So many of them, though, very technology heavy. Um, to what extent, we haven't talked so much about the actual technologies that are underpinning all this work, but it seems to me that you have kind of gone back and forth between trying to really right away go for scaling, which would mean some sort of technology. And I'm assuming um, some combination of kind of machine learning based approaches and, uh, and you know, and finding uh, that way and, and, and then some more traditional media technologies. But now that you have realized that you kind of have to go back and forth and sort of do, do some more learning before you scale it, what is the promise of AI in learning, which is this big thing? I mean, AI and everything, but, you know, what is it that AI today, or, or let's just call it machine learning, to be honest, you know, these more statistically uh, derived approaches, at least, that can summarize uh, some of the data? What is the relevant data, really, in a learning process? Well, I think that... I'm lucky enough to work not just as an entrepreneur, but also as an expert um, that's consulted with what are the trends and how are people using different technologies. And that means that a lot of companies invite me sort of behind the scenes to show what they've built and what their approach is, because they really want me to talk about their technology. And I, I think something that has puzzled me is this overemphasis on the end user. And of course, you should be careful so to say that the end user, you know, as in it's in, let's say here, the student is not yeah. the most important. 
But to me, a lot of learning fails before it's released because the process of creating and curating is so hard. And I think that what we've seen with with COVID especially is that, you know, we've talked to over 11,000 teachers on the phone because they called us. And they're all just crazy. That is crazy. It is really crazy. You know, we knew COVID happened because we got up and we had 250 missed calls in one night. So it's like we normally get like seven a day. We're like, what the hell is happening with the world? Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. They were all doing the same thing. They were all doing fourth grade math or history 101. And we thought like this isn't like this doesn't make sense. Right. And and of course, this is has been some of our thinking for some time. So so many look at machine learning and say, let's find ways of better recommending courses to the end user, or let's find ways of gathering some kind of data about their behavior. But 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 I don't think that this is where we make the biggest intervention. Um, so the way I look at it is how can we leverage, especially nat- natural language processing, to eliminate some of the very mundane tasks creating a course entails. Uh, eliminating things that no teacher will be upset, you know, if you don't have to, for example, create every exercise on your own. Because this is, refers back to this. We assume that every teacher necessarily finds it very, very interesting to, for example, create a definition exercise to ensure that the students understand all of the fundamental concepts of physics 101. But maybe that's not why you became a teacher, to create maybe 300 questions that it takes for an AI engine to create an adaptive quiz. It's super annoying, time-consuming, and very boring to create 300 questions about a topic you already know. So we said, okay, so what are some of these you know, intelligent uses of machine learning and natural language processing that we can put in that makes lives for people easier? So for example, we're releasing um, this week our new quiz engine that based on the materials you placed in the cloud, auto-generates all of your um, questions for you, whether it's for a baseline test, a regular multiple choice quiz, or all of our adaptive quizzes. So that to me is one of those things that have been tricky to build, but that has a huge value for the teacher. A couple of other things I'll mention just in this group as well that we did first is the ability to meta tag all the content you uploaded and pull out these extract knowledge tags. So something I learned when I was teaching at university is that my students were struggling articulating what they know and what they're good at. So what we can do is we can, based on the materials you interact with, actually extract the knowledge you gained and put it on your CV. And also we can reference all of the pedagogical exercises you've done. And we can also auto-generate large bodies of the course. So for example, a course, again, a course DNA, it usually starts with an introduction, regardless of what platform you're using. Then you have a unit description and some learning goals. Again, if you have an AI engine or a machine learning engine that's already consumed all of the content, already cataloged it, then you can actually, if you give it what we call conversation training, have it write the unit descriptions for you so that the biology teacher can decide to maybe opt for the description that was written. But the learning nerd might want to unfolded even further. And in that sense, we're now at a stage where all of our quizzes and an additional seven out of the 55 exercises we have, we can completely auto-generate the actual pedagogical exercise for you. And that I think is a huge invention, not on the end user, but on what to me is still the most important person to keep happy and up to date, which is the person designing the course. This is fascinating. So let me give you some sort of a, a case in point. I mean, I, I, I design courses and I have recently spent a little bit of time last week just digging into all these different platforms just because, you know, I'm starting in this new, uh, I have this new assignment uh, for myself and uh, I need to not only create some courses myself, but also facilitate and recommend how others, potentially a lot of other people in an industry across geographical context and not just in one company, but in several companies, how they should approach and how we can tie this together. And I did find it quite frustrating because not only are there hundreds of different platforms out there, they all have different requirements. They obviously, you know, they all cost something. Um, And it's not entirely clear 
what you're getting out of each of them. And the problem is once you've made started to make an investment, once you've made a choice, you are sort of locked into some of these because you start making maybe technology purchases. And then you, like you pointed out, a lot of it is content. So you start putting your content onto some of these platforms and then it becomes almost like a self-fulfilling uh, little engine. So tell me about this quiz engine. That, that fascinates me. What would I, as a course creator, let's say an individual course creator, what, what kind of level of detail would I need to go into in order for your quiz engine to be useful? I mean, do I have to have, let's say I have a book, let's say I have a draft book and I want to, which would be innovative, I would want to release a course at the moment the book is released. This is typically not the case because it's kind of one deliverable and then you get to the other. Could I give this engine my draft yeah. and then hope that some questions emerge that would actually maybe even help me write my book? Yes. So what I love about tech is that it's constantly evolving. And this is an example where um, tech is both the limitation and the answer. So this has been hard to build First of all, because of natural language processing and language. So it works very well in English now, but in almost every other language, it doesn't work very well. Certainly not in Danish. It's quite good in Spanish now. But yes, it works like that. So we can consume almost any type of content, whether it's audio, video, or written. And then based on that, produce a series of different kinds of questions. So it can be a multiple choice. It can also be uh, fill in the blanks, or it can be generating one for an open essay. Then the next step, so let's say you put in your book draft. Um, then the next step after creating the questions is also to decide if it's for a regular multiple choice quiz or if it's for an adaptive quiz. Because if it's for an adaptive quiz, then we also then um, differentiate the level of the questions. So we work with two different kinds of adaptive quizzes. One is like a staircase model where all the questions are on five different levels of difficulty. And then depending on how you do, you, you know, if you do well, you go up and up and up and you can test out. And if you do, if you do something wrong, you level down. And then we also have a repeat uh, model where the questions are at the same level of difficulty, but you go in a circle first taking the entire sample um, and then everything you get that you get correct except for 20% that goes out and the rest stays in the sample. And it evolves again until you either stop or you answered all of them correctly. So you would you know, upload the material, pick what kind of quiz it is, and the questions would adapt to the format there. And then you have it ready. And it's the same. I just saw a question and now I'm telling everyone about it because I'm so I'm so fascinated with the fact that it was possible. But we have a course about gender and identity and our, our um here it's not the quiz engine, but it's just the, the pedagogical exercise engine. It spit out um, the question, what is the difference between sex and gender? So sometimes we get it extremely correct and sometimes it's still gibberish. So they're in beta. And again, you know, in English, we're getting really, really qualified things come out. And then in other languages, not so much yet. But of course, they learn and they get better and we train them. So another example is this, where we create the text for the actual units. There, you know, the first time we re released it, it was correct, but it didn't feel right. So it was short and it was blunt and it was impersonal. And therefore, I personally had a very sort of negative reaction towards the text, even though it was factually right. So then we did this whole conversation training. How long should it be? What words make us feel welcome? What are the, like almost a small talk you put into a unit. In the first unit, there are certain terminologies. So we analyzed what is the terminology our users use when it's the first unit. Welcome to the course. In this exciting course, we're going to learn about this. The same way when you conclude, we hope that you had a good time or we hope that you learned something or here's their link to our survey. So we dissected all of that and did that conversation training on top of it. And we just released um, with the second iteration on our demo server that has had this conversation training. Fascinating. But look, I mean, I believe it's possible to distill maybe questions. Uh, I mean, that, that sounds intuitively possible, even though we all know that questions are actually harder than the answers. But then I guess I have a harder time understanding how you can really make useful answers. I mean, is your engine focused on more on the 
creating the questions or in creating the answers or both? Uh, so we also do both. So it's it's different. It's different exercises. So some of them you only generate the question, and some of it the answer. The answer has mm. been the most uh, difficult. Um, so we actually had to hire someone new. We recently hired um, a woman called Tracy uh, from Vietnam because our AI team couldn't get the questions to be hard. So in what I mean by or, or the answer, the answers because. Let's say it's a question about where was Donald Trump born, right? This is a very, very simple, we're making a very simple example. Then if it just picks a city that's mentioned in the text, you know that you didn't, you didn't learn anything, but you can recognize that that city was there. So that's not the level that we wanted. And the team could only get the one with the multiple choice answers to be of that level of quality. So what we did is we went out and we researched who is doing the most interesting peer-reviewed articles about natural language processing. And we found a woman, this is a, it's a brave new world, right? You can find anybody anywhere now. And we found a woman um, in Vietnam uh, who had created some crazy um, engines, like question engines. And uh, we contacted her and said, do you want to work with Canopy Lab? And uh, and she said yes. And then she started three months ago. <laughs> it's a, it's a fantastic world. What what I think is interesting about it is some of it doesn't work super well the first time you try, but but tech evolves so fast. So an example is this way when we were tagging in the beginning, the meta tagging. So you could say I learned about international relations from this text. In the beginning, it only worked well in English. And the reason it worked well is because we, as in our team, sat for over 3,000 hours and watched YouTube videos and tagged it manually. And then eventually the algorithm got better than us, but it took a really, really long time. The other languages, it was like, forget about it. It doesn't work. We don't know when it's going to work. And then one day Google updated their NLP. And from one second to another, it worked in all the languages from one day to another. <sighs> So when you I have a question to you. Then, then you know, yeah. as the giants, this is kind of how we view our relationship yeah. with the giants. Let them do some of the work. We're never going to beat them in this stuff, but we can beat them in how we're applying it to a different context. Well, see, that was actually going to be my question. That's funny. So in, in thinking about kind of emerging future of learning here, um, one thing that strikes me is that a, a lot of these platforms that I just talked about a moment ago that I'm considering for my own work, right, whether it is, uh, you know, the Coursera's or, you know, they are platforms in, 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 in the sense that they are as much a value because they have a network embedded with them as it is the functionality. How do you think about that? Because, well, one, as a startup, you clearly either have to kind of ignore that aspect and, and just sell to the client and assume they have, you know, as a university, their own platform and their own PR department. Or you have to realize that the game, at least this decade, and I'm not convinced it'll last, but I'm curious to, to hear your opinion. Right now, the game is platforms. So it's not, you know, it's not just about how clever your engine is, but it is, you know, does it come with a, with an audience? And if it doesn't come with an audience, it could be as good as it is, you know, and, you know, as a course creator, I might be better off creating a, a, you know, a course on a platform that is slightly inferior to yours, but it has a bigger audience naturally built in so that I don't have to do all that hard work that we just talked about. So how do you think about evolving learning that way? Is it going to be a game where only the top three platforms really have a market and, you know, everyone else is like innovating at the edges? Uh, or is the logic actually about to change so that, you know, there are some innovations that not just you are doing, but that will change this game so that the platforms of today aren't necessarily one going to be the platforms of tomorrow, or maybe it's not even a platform game at the end of the day. Well, I, I mean, you're asking many interesting things at, at the same time. If I sort of address this whole um is it the software or the audience? Is it really the brand and the reach or what you're building of quality? I think yeah. in, I think that game is changing. I think that was one of my initial frustrations. So I didn't initially think that I wanted to build a learning platform. I never wanted to build anything, really. I just wanted to to teach and research and, and work with what I was passionate about, which at that time wasn't software yet. But I think that for too long... Um, EdTech, let's call it that, has been about brand and positioning. 
I don't understand how so many terrible systems still exist. But then I understand because they're owned by such big companies and you see them year by year win awards that they paid for themselves um, about how amazing and interactive and intuitive their systems are. But if you've ever tried it, you know, it's not true. So, so I think for the past 10 to 15 years, it's been like that, but I do think it's changing. It's and small things. We see much more that platforms are held accountable by their actual customer reviews in like G2 and e-learning industry where actual real people are reviewing it with their LinkedIn. And you can see that the tiny, totally unknown startups are getting better reviews than some of the giants. So I think it's changing. Also, I think the way we're buying software, software is dropping in price across the board. A lot of the platforms are becoming less difficult to navigate. So customer loyalty towards a product is being reduced because it actually is getting easier to jump from platform to platform. People are getting used to using multiple softwares. So we see a lot of universities and schools that we're in, they have many. So in the, you know, in the beginning, five years ago in Denmark, everyone had Moodle. Then maybe a couple bought a Blackboard, but you had one and that was a five-year investment and you couldn't get out of it. And no matter what, and no matter how much consulting you had to pay, that was it. That's totally changing. So people, both sense of loyalty, but also the expectations you have. So we're now using so much software, Facebook, Snapchat, anything. And that's influencing our uh, perception of what a social of what a learning platform is. So we're like, how come I figured out Snapchat in five minutes, but this platform is so heavy, maybe it's not even in the cloud. So you begin to ask questions that you didn't ask. So I think it is changing. And I think that even the bigger players you know, there's a reason why some of the bigger players are buying smaller platforms to put in a new engine because they're realizing, yes, we took the initial reach, but people aren't going to continue to be loyal to what we're building. But of course, it is a marketing machine. The best platform, I don't think for now, still won't win. Um, and I also think five years from now, unless some of us totally innovate again, none of us will exist. We don't even we can't even fathom what's like around the corner. That's that's what I believe. What I've seen be possible in the last two years makes it impossible to dream how things will look like in five years. Well, I hope that we can still dream, but it the, the dreams will be different than the realities. Yeah. Look, this has been fascinating, Sarah. I feel like you know you. It's so inspiring that you can get onto something uh, like this and then take it as far as you have taken it. So I, I wish you every uh, bit of luck with that in your uh, in your learning journey and with your with your company. Thank you so much for sharing these observations with us. Thank you for having me. You have just listened to episode 73 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of social learning. Our guest was Sarah Josephine Hjort, CEO and co-founder of Canopy Lab. In this conversation, we talk about powering learners, about blended learning, moving beyond screen time to virtual immersion, AI and AR, how to use tech the right way, tackling scaling challenges in social learning, edtech post-COVID-19, and digitizing the 50-plus ways of classroom learning that Sarah has found into a teacher's toolbox, plugging 21st century skills gap and the next decade's learning reality. My takeaway is that social learning is much talked about but poorly understood. How could it be that Sarah Josephine Hjort, in 2020 no less, is among the few to describe each of the social and pedagogical components that go into teaching this ancient practice that is so important? It boggles the mind. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 65 on the urgency of youth education or episode 51 on AI for learning, episode 27 on the future of online learning or episode 22 on the future of engineering education. Futurized, prepare you to deal with disruption.